Everybody's finding their seats. We have one announcement. This coming Sunday, June the 14th, is going to be our uh, communion service. So we will have communion here with the limited people that are here. So you need to have yours at home. We'll have our probably our last virtual communion, but you need to be prepared with your either your grape juice, wine, or our matzah, whatever, and be, be prepared. Now, I got a comment last time that's important that, that everyone here comes in and gets their uh, cup and gets their matzah, and then they go sit down. That's our procedure for the 10 or so people that are here. So when it's not like normal because we don't have deacons passing things out, there's a, so there's not... 30 or 45 seconds or a minute in between the bread and the cup. So everybody needs to have everything ready at the beginning of the service because I will go from the bread to the cup like that. And if you're not ready, you're going to be spilling grape juice. So everybody be prepared. Just a little warning that at the beginning, make sure everybody has everything ready to go. And, of course, we'll have a little different procedure because we're going to get the little packets of the elements uh, in June, with, uh, July, rather, and that's going to be a whole new deal. So, okay, is everybody totally, totally confused? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, that we are in fellowship, that is, enjoying our walk with the Lord, which is breached when we sin. Therefore, we need to recover through confession of sin, which is simply admitting or acknowledging our sins to God the Father in prayer. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening, begin to reopen the church, having everyone come to Bible class on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and soon have everyone back on Sunday mornings. Father, we're thankful that there is a reopening of this country. Father, we pray that you would give skill and wisdom to those who are trying to find out all they can about the COVID virus. There's so much that is uh, spread around one week it's one story and the next week it's another as, as uh, the, this virus is investigated. Father, we pray that you would just keep us safe, watch over us, 
and everyone in this congregation. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our president and those in power. We as believers need to be able to uh, worship in peace, be able to teach fully the whole counsel of God without fear of government interference, and be able to practice that which the scripture says we should practice when we are in our offices, when we are at work, when we are with our employees, and not be pressured into uh, having to approve or validate carnal or sinful activity. And that is too often the case today, and it forces us to compromise. So, Father, we pray that you might change the direction of this country. We need to be able to carry out our, live our spiritual lives with, without any uh, fear of these complications. Father, we pray for this nation because the divisions are deep and significant. And they are all due to a rejection of your word. We have to get back to your word. We have to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And only then can we really heal these fissures that are in our country, uh, whether it's the racism or whether it's uh, just the others who want to bring in socialism, want to bring in forms of communism, the radical rabble-rousers. There are so many. There are the those who are the atheists, the secularists, all of which want to stomp out your word. And, Father, we pray that you would give us as believers courage to stand our ground, to teach the word, and to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Pray that you'd open our eyes to the word this morning and to see its application as well as its implications in many areas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this evening for, to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19, we are at that point when David is informed that his son Absalom is di- has died and has been killed uh, by his own men, by his army, as a result of Absalom's rebellion against David, his attempt to destroy the unity of the kingdom, his attempt to attack God's anointed, and to kill his father, uh, the king. And as a result of this, we are going to see David's uh, extremely profound and deep expression of grief, which comes at the last verse of chapter 18, where when he hears of Absalom's death, he cries out, Oh, my son Absalom! My son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O Absalom, my son, my son. And so we see the expression of his grief and his mourning, and we need to learn some important and vital lessons in Scripture about grief. For what we will observe here at the beginning is that this is a grief gone wrong. And I don't believe I've taught in a long time about the nature of grief, but it is time that we do so, and this is a timely message. Grief is different for everyone. It is You can't create a pattern or a paradigm that you can say one thing, and that is it will be different for everyone. And even in your life and my life, As we have experienced grief over different losses and the deaths of different people and different friends and different family, the grief that we might experience the last time will not be the same as when we have a serious, significant grief 
the next time. Grief is strange. Grief sometimes comes like waves. You can be just going about your daily activities when all of a sudden you're just, you're just hit by this wave of grief that seems overpowering. You just need to get off by yourself. And then after a little while, it goes away. And then maybe three or four hours later, you hear something, see something, or maybe there's no trigger. All of a sudden, you just are overwhelmed by this sense of grief again. Uh, grief sometimes surprises us. Sometimes it's like a dark cloud that just sits over us, and at other times it's like an unseen fog that just shrouds our thinking, and it's not until maybe a few months, a few years have come by, and all of a sudden one day life seems a little brighter. And so it's different for each and every person. Nobody can look at another person's grief and make any kind of judgment. Also, grief cannot be hurried up. It can't be slowed down. I often get frustrated when I hear believers say, well, you just need to do this or you just need to do that. That's obviously somebody who's never really gone through a significant grief. Uh, It's just something you have to go through, and at one point or another, you realize that, that you're through it. Grief is an emotional response to a loss. It in itself is not sinful. There is nothing wrong with being sad or being sorrowful or grieving over a loss. But what we do with it, ah, there's the rub. It's like other emotions. It's not having the emotion that is a sin. It is what we do with it, how we react to it and what we do in order to deal with it. As with almost everything else in life, grief is a test. It is a spiritual test for the believer in Jesus Christ. We, it's like everything, every other test. Every test in life has two options. Either you respond God's way or you respond man's way. And every one of us have a sin nature that has an affinity for man's way. And as the proverb says twice, there's a way that seems right to man but the end thereof is death. It seems right. It feels good. I just have to let myself go with it and everything will be okay. And we have all these psychologists who say this and affirm that and everybody else seems to uh, do it this way, but that is not God's way. And as believers, we are called not only to a higher standard, but we're called to that higher standard because it's going to provide stability for us in the midst of these kinds of difficulties and and loss. And so we have to handle it either God's way by the word of God or we're handling it with our sin nature. And the sin nature may feel good for a while, but the end result is never good. Grief is the result of a loss. Now, there are all kinds of losses that we experience in life, and to one degree or another, we're going to experience some level of grief or sadness or sorrow. The primary, primary thing that we experience with grief is, is at a time of death. Uh, we also have grief when we go through a divorce. We have grief if we hit a fi- financial calamity and we lose Money. Sometimes that's the result of losing a job. Sometimes there's other, another kind of calamity and we lose 
a, a, a lot of money. We see the market collapse and every uh, you see a 401k go from 500,000 to 50,000 and there is gr there's grief over the loss of money. It can be the loss of a home through a disaster like fire. I had a friend in college who when he was in his 50s his house burned down everything, every memento, every memory, every picture, everything was lost. And I, I didn't see him for a long time or know about it for a long time and I had a conversation with his wife and she said he just never was the same. He was just absolutely devastated because of everything that, that he had lost. And that's just the grief. And the only way that you can handle it is with the Word of God. That's the only protection that we have in life. You can lose a home through a disaster like a fire, a flood, or a hurricane. We had a lot of people who went through through that after Hurricane Harvey and other hurricanes here. It can be something a little different. If you had the loss of a vision, if you've hoped for and dreamed for something for much of your life, worked to attain something, and it's within your grasp, and then it suddenly becomes unattainable, then you're going to go through a grief as a result of that, the loss of a vision, the loss of hope, the loss of a dream, the loss of some important event that you have trained for, competition, an athletic competition, or a job. Uh, there can be grief over the loss of an election. The loss can be deeply personal, as in the death of a spouse, or the loss of a child, or a baby, an infant, or even an adult child. The death of a friend or a parent. Sometimes it may be less personal, but nevertheless it can be as profound. You may be in a mental or spiritual state one day, and if the loss occurred there, you would handle it one way, 24 hours later, you handle it a totally different way. It all comes down to the Word of God ultimately. Grief is normal in a post-fall world, but grief was not ever intended by God in a perfect world where there was no sin, where there was no death, where there was no sickness, where there was no loss, where there was nothing imperfect. But grief is normal, and I believe that God has put grief into our lives to cause us to realize that life is not fair, that life isn't just, that we will face one injustice after another, one difficulty after another, and we will be forced to say, it's not right, again and again, because that drives us to recognize that there's something wrong with the world we live in. It's not a utopia. It's not perfect. Men are not perfect. Human beings are not perfect. And because there's sin, there has to be a solution, and that's a Savior. It's, grief is a time for us to come face-to-face -face with God's solution. When we handle grief with our sin nature, our grief can and will be destructive. It will be destructive of self. It will be destructive of relationships with others. Destructive guilt is often uh, manifested in anger, or excuse me, destructive grief can often be manifested in anger, bitterness, resentment, depression, and a distortion of reality. There are people who slip into psychoses because of grief. They don't know how to handle it. They, they just can't come to grips with the fact that that person isn't there. Now, many of us are familiar 
with the so-called stages of grief. This was a study that came out back in the 70s by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a spiritualist. She was not a Christian. She wrote a book called On Death and Dying, where she, she tracked her observations of what people go through when they are near their death, when they are in the process of dying. What happened is that she uh, then translated that or applied it over to those who are left behind, those who are grieving. And so she had five stages of grief. Today, if you go out on the Internet, and just as I did today, looking for more information on this, uh, I searched five stages of grief. I came up with six stages of grief, seven stages of grief, eight stages of grief. There might even be more, but I wasn't doing an extensive study on how many stages of grief human viewpoint could come up with. But all of this came as a result of her observations on what most people went through. Now, I have to think about this a little bit. Who is doing the observing? A spiritualist, not somebody who is thinking about life from divine viewpoint or from a biblical framework, and she is not observing people who are believers in Christ who have a knowledge of the word of God in their souls. She is observing pagans. She's observing unbelievers. She's observing perhaps carnal Christians, and maybe there was a, an odd Christian in there who was a believer operating on the word of God. But what she observed were sin-nature-controlled unbelievers who were driven by their grief. She wasn't observing what happens in the life of a believer who's applying the Word of God. So when I hear a believer talk about the five stages of grief, I want to vomit in their face. It makes me sick. They have compromised so much with human viewpoint, they don't even know it. Sure, you and I will manifest some of those stages. We will do so because at some times in our grief, we allow ourselves to be controlled by our sin nature, don't we? We become just as self-sorbed and, and fall into self-pity, just like somebody who doesn't know a thing about the Word of God. So when I hear a believer talk about the five stages of grief, I know they they may have learned a lot of the Word of God. They may have doctrinal notebooks up on the shelf, but they've got nothing in their soul. They have bought into a lot of human viewpoint garbage. And even her co-author, when she came out with a second book that had the stages of grief in it, there was a co-author whose name I didn't write down, but he said, you know, not everybody went through the same thing. It's been abused so much that we ought not even think about it. We just need to know what the Scripture says about grief because there's a lot of confusion in the Christian world about grief. So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about grief and grieving before we can come back and do an understand, look at an understanding of what's going on with David in this particular episode. So what does the Bible teach about grief and grieving? Ultimately, it comes down to volition comes down to your choice it's you know they abuse the title it's a great title but two of my pastoral psychology professors at dallas seminary wrote a book called happiness is a choice after they wrote the title they didn't get anything else right 
it's a choice between applying the Word of God and living on the basis of human viewpoint on whatever it is on, you know, just the uh, common sense, so to speak, of the culture around you or whatever it might be, or the Word of God. Now, let's look at this and understand a few things. First of all, we have the passage talking about Jesus in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 37, we're told that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he went off apart from the other disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even at that time, you had enormous old olive trees. And they went off to sit in a quiet space away from the others, and he was separated himself from them to pray. And Matthew writes that he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, that, for a lot of people, doesn't fit with their view of a perfect Jesus. That's because they've got an imperfect view of a perfect Jesus. The word here for sorrowful is the word lupeo. It has the idea of grief or pain, sorrow or sadness, or to experience emotional distress. It is a present passive infinitive. As a present tense, it has an ingressive sense. That's why it's translated, he began to be. And the passive is important because the second meaning that is given for the word in the BDAG, the Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich lexicon, is to experience sadness or distress. It's when it's in the passive voice. So Jesus began to experience sadness, distress, sorrow. That's not sinful because we're told that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. The temptation is to have those emotions. The temptation is to feel sorrowful, to be grieving. What's he grieving over? He's grieving over he's been rejected. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to go through all this physical torment and torture. And in his omniscience, he knows exactly what that's going to be like. And worse than everything else, he is going to bear in his own body on the tree our sin. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He didn't become a sinner, but he who was perfectly righteous and holy became sin. And that was a miserable, painful, horrible, excruciatingly difficult time for him, much greater than anything that we can ever imagine. As I pointed out many times, he, he went before, like a lamb before his shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. They beat him, they whipped him, they tortured him for several hours before he goes to the cross and he never opened his mouth. He never grunted or groaned or complained. He never screamed out. He doesn't scream until the sin, our sin hits him. That's to illustrate how horrific it was. But he is sorrowful. Second use of this word that is theologically significant is in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is a passage that I often quote and I often touch on this uh, tangentially when I am giving a funeral and I read through this passage. It's the central passage on the rapture, but its purpose is to provide comfort. 
Paul says to the Thessalonians who were surprised, they expected that Jesus would come at any day, so when some of their people died, they didn't know how to handle that. So Paul said, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Falling asleep is a biblical uh, euphemism for a believer who dies. It's never used of an unbeliever. It's not talking about soul sleep. It's just saying that, that they are asleep in the arms of Jesus. It's just an idiom. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, they've died physically, the soul separates from the body, is face to face with the Lord in heaven until it is rejoined with the resurrection body at the second coming, I mean, excuse me, at the rapture. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The word there for sorrow is the same word describing Jesus in the Garden of Eden. It is a present passive Infinitive. Actually, I don't think it's a present passive infinitive. I should have changed that slide. It is um, a present passive subjunctive, a present passive subjunctive, because uh, it's expressing this final purpose clause for the purpose that you sorrow as others who have no hope. But it's passive, which means to experience sadness, distress, or sorrow. Now, from these two verses... What we see are several important conclusions. First of all, Jesus had sadness and sorrow, but it wasn't a sin. He had emotional distress because of what's about to happen the next day. Second, Jesus did not act on that sorrow in a sinful way. So because Jesus has sadness and sorrow, the first point, We know that being sad or being sorrowful or grieving in and of itself is not sinful. And I've heard some believers act that way and say that, that, well, you shouldn't grieve because you're not trusting God. You want to slap somebody like that in the face. That does, you know, that just screws somebody up when you give false doctrine like that. But I've heard it a lot, and it's just plain wrong. Jesus had sadness and sorrow, and it's not sinful. It's what you do with it. It's what you do. You feel angry at something. Feeling angry at something isn't necessarily sinful. It might be depending on the circumstances, but in and of itself, it's not. It's what you do with it. If you react in anger, if that motivates you to do sinful things, then it's an emotional sin that's, that is sinful. Jesus does not act on that sorrow. He doesn't say, I'm getting out of here. He doesn't say, I'm done with this. I'm not going to put up with these creatures who are coming to arrest me. I'm God. I'm not going to put up with that. He doesn't let the distress cause him or motivate him to sin at all. The third thing that we learn from this is that sadness, grief, sorrow, emotional distress are not sinful in themselves. It's what we do because of those emotions when that causes us to sin. And that's what's important. The test is having that emotion. The test is what are you going to do with it? Are you going to react to it God's way? Are you going to react to it man's way? Now, one more thing I want to talk about from the New Testament is in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is the episode where Lazarus dies and where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which happens just a week or two before 
he dies, he goes to the cross and dies. So in John 11.35, as Jesus has come, and he's there with the crowds of mourners, the friends and family of Lazarus, and he sees their grief, we read the shortest verse in the English Bible, uh, Jesus wept. Now, what's the background here? Now, this, this is important to understand this. Jesus is not weeping because Jesus is grieving. By saying that, I'm not minimizing weeping when you're grieving. I'm not saying it's wrong to weep when you grieve. I'm saying Jesus isn't weeping because he's grieving for Lazarus. Jesus actually is grieving for another reason, and that's usually missed when people look at the text. Now, I usually bring this out whenever I'm doing a a, uh, funeral or memorial service. But what happens as we look at the events here, Lazarus, who is a friend of Jesus, he would always stay with the family. Lazarus was the brother, Mary and her sister Martha, and these siblings lived in Bethany. Bethany is about three miles from the temple. Okay, it's across the Mount of Olives, just on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just a small village. And Jesus would frequently stay there with them. And now Jesus is across the Jordan where he is ministering there. Lazarus becomes sick. And the sisters send a messenger to Jesus saying in verse 3, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. The word there for love is phileo. It indicates a close, personal, intimate friendship. This is a good friend. One time I preached this, somebody came up to me and said, I never thought about the fact that Jesus had friends. He had friends just like you, and Lazarus is a close friend, and so Mary and Martha sent for him. And when Jesus heard that, he says to his disciples, well, this sickness is not unto death. In a few verses, he's going to clarify and tell them, yes, he's dead, okay, but it's not permanent. He doesn't say it's not permanent, but that's the implication. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then we're reminded again, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Have you noticed a co- conflict between those two verses? If you had the ability to heal somebody who's dying, and you loved the family, and you got a message that they were dying, come and help would you stay where you were another two days? See, that's, that's what goes, it says Jesus loved them. He cared about them. So he waited two days. Okay? So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in place where he was, and then after that he said, well, let's, to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And so the disciples remind him, the Jews, now it's interesting, and and I haven't brought this out that much, I have here and there, but one of the problems with the way John writes and the way he's been translated is that he always refers to the Jews, and this has been a cause for Christian anti-Semitism. If you look at the Greek, it really says the Judeans, not the Jews, it's not a statement that's singling out the Jews, because, of course, John's a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, the disciples are Jew, Mary, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all Jews, 
Everybody's a Jew. In fact, they're all Judeans. This is really a term that describes the leadership, the religious leadership among the Judeans. And so Jesus goes, and they're still questioning him right when you get down to verse 11, and we read, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. What did I tell you about sleep a few minutes ago in First Thessalonians chapter 4? It's a euphemism for a believer who is physically dead. His uh, immaterial soul is face-to-face with the Lord, or with God in this case. Uh, Lazarus would have been in, in uh, Sheol in Abraham's bosom. And he says, um, our, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now, Jesus has said two important things. First, he says in verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. Second, he says, uh, I'm going to go wake him up. So do you think Jesus is going to be weeping because Lazarus is dead? Not at all. Because Jesus knows that when he gets there, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the whole point of his, this happening. That's why he says this is for the glory of God. So Jesus is not at all concerned. He, he knows that in, when, as soon as he arrives and goes out there, he's going to call Lazarus out of the grave, and Lazarus is going to come, come out. So there's no reason for him to uh, be sorrowful over Lazarus's, Lazarus's death at all. But the disciples still don't get it. And in verse 12, they say, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. And Jesus probably shook his head and wonder if they have brain cells that have awakened yet. And Jesus uh, has to remind them, so he plainly spoke to them, Lazarus is dead. So then when Jesus arrives and he begins to come close, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And as he comes, Martha hears that he's coming in verse 20 and goes out to meet him. And as she comes up, she she really kind of confronts him. Lord, if you'd just been here, he wouldn't have died. That indicates a lot of faith on her part, but it also, she's condemning Jesus for not getting there right away. And she says in verse 22, but even now I know that when you ask of God, God will give you. So Jesus said, your brother will live again. And Martha says, you know, I think she said in this tone of voice, this is pure subjective. Well, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection the last day. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, uh, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the focal point of the gospel, believing that Christ is the resurrection and the life, and they died on the cross that we may have that life living waters, all through John. It's all about life, not about sorrow and sadness and grief. So she says to him, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who will come come into the world. Now, what happens then is they go to the tomb, and Jesus looks around, and there are all these mourners everywhere. And Mary has come to him and said, Lord, if said the same thing, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's weeping. The Jews who came with her are weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Same language that Mark uses about Jesus' emotions in the Garden of Eden. 
So he has these emotions in his humanity, but they're not sinful because he doesn't act on them in a sinful way. And so he groans in the spirit, he's troubled, he says, where have you laid them? And they said, Lord, come and see, and then Jesus weeps. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because we were never intended in God's perfect plan to grieve. Grief is the result of death. God's original plan was not that we would die. Adam and Eve were created perfect. There was no death in the garden. The death came into the garden because of their disobedience to God. Grief was not part of God's perfect plan. Grief is not normal. Normal for human beings is the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. Everything since Adam and Eve ate the fruit is abnormal. Y'all, every time I say that, y'all remember the scene in Young Frankenstein? And they have the different brains, and there's one that's abnormal and you know, eager reads it, Abby normal. Okay, we're in an Abby normal world. It's not normal. It hasn't been normal since sin. We live in an abnormal world. And so we recognize that every time there's grief and there's sorrow and we scream out in our souls, This isn't right. There's something wrong. That person should not have died. They should still be here. I just spoke to them two minutes ago or five minutes ago. We wake up the next day and we pick up the phone to call them and it hits us all over again. It's not normal. That is God's message to us that we're not living in a normal world. We need to have a redemption of the world and that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so we know the rest of the story that Uh, Jesus calls out uh, Lazarus. He comes forth from the grave, and he is alive to live to a a full, full life. That gives us a framework for understanding grief as it's more clearly taught in the New Testament, that grief is a response in these cases to death. Grief in and of itself is not a sinful emotion, But if we respond on the basis of our sin nature and without the word of God, it will be. It will be something that is terrible and something that is destructive and something that will cause a tremendous amount of pain and suffering as consequences in the life of others. When I was a young pastor, young pastors make mistakes. Some of them are mistakes of omission. Some are mistakes of commission because you don't have any experience. And some are just made out of absolute ignorance of anything. I was at my first church. It was in Lamarck, which is down here by Galveston. And I had gone there. It was kind of an interesting process of of, uh, getting called to that church they were doing a stupid thing that some churches have done, and you compete. You get two or three guys you're looking at, and you're competing. And in this case, the church liked both guys because we were both from Dallas, and about 55% of the church wanted somebody who was a Bible teacher from Dallas Seminary. The other 45% wanted Robert Schuler or Norman Vincent Peale. So there was a sort of an inherent sort of division in the congregation. 
And so since I lived in Houston and the other guy whom I've never met, but he's pre-trib, he's he's written several articles, I've read them, I've never met him. He's He's a good guy, really solid. But because I was here, I told him, I said, anytime that you just need pulpit fill, I'd be glad to come down here. So as they got to know me a little bit better, they decided that they would call me to be the pastor. That happened in December, and so sometime probably in the spring of the coming year, I was teaching a Wednesday night Bible class, and I probably had about 10 or 12 people there. And I was teaching, I don't even remember what I was teaching through, what book I was teaching through, but I was talking about death and and talking about grief. Now, another thing that had happened right at Christmas, I was going through this whole candidating uh, situation, is that I had a good friend. I had known him from Campanile for quite a number of years. He had been a leader with me on backpacking and canoe trips for several years. I knew his brother. I knew his father. And this guy was in med school down in Galveston. And he's a great guy, one of those great personalities. And once they found out about this Bible church in Lamarck, they would drive, he and his wife would drive up uh, from Galveston, and they got to be part of the church. Everybody loved him. And in the middle of all of that, Tim's dad died. Now, we thought he was old at the time, but we were still in our 20s. So his dad was probably early 50s. So he died young, unexpectedly from a heart attack. He was a great guy. He knew the Lord. He he was a, a solid believer and raised two uh, two boys, two young men who were really solid. Both of them had been counselors at Campanile when I was when I was there, and just have, have had very solid, good spiritual lives over the years. And so, as I was teaching this night on death and grief, I used that as an example that when uh, Tim's dad died, uh, he was sorrowful because his dad died, but but his grief was not a grief like unbelievers. He wasn't overwhelmed by it. He was very, very close to his dad, but he knew that his father was in heaven with the Lord, and so he was relaxed and calm, even though he had he had some sorrow and sadness for missing his dad. And as I'm teaching, all of a sudden I notice this one man, older man, of course everybody was older than me, I was like 29 at the time, and and he's just starting to weep, and then his wife starts to weep, and, and before long, because it's a small group, everybody knows that they're weeping, and so I had to stop. And what I didn't know was that about 15 or 16 years earlier, that they had an 18-year-old daughter about to graduate from high school who was killed in a horrible automobile accident, and it was just tragic and terrible and 18 years later, they had not yet come to grips with this. There's a le- really important lesson here. I spent a lot of time after that talking to them about things, finding out more about them and the timelines and different things like this. And I've used this for an example many times, that Tim and his family were longtime believers. Their soul was fortified with the Word of God so that when a tragedy occurred, they could handle it by trusting in the Lord and claiming promises. This other family had not really been taught well. They had not been at this church for many years before this had happened, and they weren't really fortified in in their soul with the Word of God. And that year, as I was reading my Bible through, I came across Proverbs chapter 1, verses 15 to 33, which I recommend that you read at some time, but not right now. 
And basically what's going on in Proverbs is wisdom is personified. And wisdom is offering herself to this young man that, you know, if you spend time learning what God has to say and uh, absorbing and assimilating it into your soul, then you will have wisdom and understanding and your life will have stability. But if you don't, and the tragedy comes, then I'm not going to be there for you. And you won't have wisdom and understanding, and basically, in a paraphrase, it's going to be too late, and you're going to be hung out to dry because you didn't take advantage to learn the Word of God when you had the opportunity. And once the tragedy occurs, if you're not fortified by the Word of God, it will be a thousand times harder to recover than if the Word of God was already embedded in your soul. And that was a great lesson and a great uh, example to me of the importance of the Word and getting it when you can, not waiting till you need it because then it's just going to be too late and there's not a lot that you can do about it. When grief happens, you have to be spiritually prepared. But there's another important thing here. And that is, even if you're like David, and you're spiritually prepared, but you're not walking with the Lord, or you have an area in your life, like David had with Absalom, where it hasn't been a good relationship. David has not been a good father. David has been, a actually, with Absalom, a miserable parent. He spoiled Absalom. When there was the incident we saw with Amnon and Tamar, when Amnon rapes Tamar, who is uh, Absalom's half-sister, then what happens is uh, uh, Absalom sets up a plan to kill Amnon and to murder him. What did David do? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't know what to do with him. He has lost his, his moral compass. He hasn't a history of disciplining uh, Absalom. And so now Absalom is completely out of control and operating on his own self-absorbed arrogance. And it gets worse from there. And so you have all of these things going on in David's mind. And frankly, David's not a whole lot different from most of us. We've had successes and failures with kids, with people, with friends. We've said right things the wrong way and wrong things perhaps that we thought we were saying the right way, all kinds of mistakes that we've made in life. And so when something tragic like this happens, there's just all kinds of garbage that's going around in our soul as as we're trying to work through it. And for David, it just focused everything not on God or God's plan. That's the last thing he's he's thinking about. He is thinking solely and exclusively about Absalom. A couple of things to point out before we get into the passage. First of all, first of all, grief is powerful and will overwhelm the person that is not spiritually prepared for the death. And I've taught this for years. Parents, from the minute, let me back it up a minute, couples, from the minute you say I do, you have to put the other person in God's hands. 
and recognize that that marriage may last a day, a week, a month, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 70 years, if God is gracious. But if God takes that person home, you have never been given a guarantee that they're going to be there your whole life. And parents, when you have kids, you need to recognize the same thing. I want you to think about a situation, hypothetical. Doorbell rings one day, you go to the door, there's a man dressed in a uniform. He says, I have special delivery. Uh, Special delivery mail for you, hands it to you. You go into the house, you open it, and, and there's $500 in the envelope. And you think, wow, who would send me $500? You think about all your friends, you start calling people, asking people, nobody admits to it, you don't know where it came from. The next day, same time, doorbell rings. You're busy, you're a little frustrated. Why is somebody bothering me again? You know, you go to the door, and it's the same, you know, FedEx delivery guy with the envelope. Once again, you open it up, there's $500 cash. The third day, it's getting to that same time, and and you're looking at your watch saying, well, is that doorbell going to ring again? And it does. And you go to the door, and it's the same FedEx delivery guy, and he hands you the FedEx envelope. You open it up, and there's $500 in there. The fourth day, you're sitting by the door. And this goes on day after day, week after week, for four or five years. And you're just ecstatic. I mean, you've got all kinds of plans. You've invested your money. you're, You're building castles in the air. Everything you're anticipating this, you know exactly how much money will be coming in another five years. You're going to be able to completely retire with this investment and cars, dreams, everything are yours. And then the doorbell doesn't ring. How do you feel? Well, where is he? You go outside, you walk up and down the street, you look look both ways, there's nobody there. Well, I don't know, maybe something happened. The next day, same time comes around. No doorbell. Now, day after day after day, there's no doorbell. You're mad. You're angry. You're upset. Where's your money? You were counting on that. You expected that to be there. Your dreams were built on the expectation that that money was going to be there. But there never was an explanation. There never was a promise. There never was a guarantee that that was going to be there. The point of this is that when you have a child, God doesn't say, or doesn't give you an expiration date on his foot telling you how long you're going to have that child. You may have that child two days, you may have it two years, you may have it 20 years, or you may have that, that child may outlive you. But there's no guarantee. We have to take God's gifts and welcome them every single day, and we can't expect that God is going to give us the things that we want just because we want them and just because he's given us good things in the past. When we lose a close friend, a family member, if they are older, they are older than it's expected, but we miss them, we grieve. But if they're younger, then it's hard. If we go through some other things, if we go through divorce, if we go through... Uh, the loss of a young child or even a 20 or 30-something child, then then it's tough because it's not supposed to be that way. Parents are not supposed to uh, outlive their children. So we have to understand the spiritual side of things and God's plan and purpose. 
that God has a plan, and it's his plan, and it's the best, and you have to really learn that. One of the things that I heard from a parent one time when their son died was, I've said this all my life, that God has a plan and a purpose, and his timing is perfect, so either I believe it or I don't. And I've always said I believed it, so I better believe it. And it made a difference. I have friends who have lost young children and adult children. I have um, one summer I had the son of a close friend of mine get killed in an automobile accident less than five miles from where I was camping, and I didn't know about it for two weeks. And then when I got to this church... And at this church, there were there were these parents who were still having they they were still grieving as if it, they had just heard the news that day. I knew there was something different because all these other families that I was closely acquainted with and whose sons were my age and my friends and we grew up together, those parents had the word of God fortifying their soul, and there was such a remarkable difference. So we as individuals have to be prepared for that. Grieving is always a wake-up call that life isn't normal. But when we're not in fellowship and we're focused on the wrong priorities and that loss hits us, it can throw us completely off and we can fall into arrogance and self-absorption and have the greatest pity parties known to man because of what has happened. What often happens when people get mired in their arrogance and out of control emotionally is that if if they have good friends who are in the Word, someone's going to come along and someone is going to tell them, hold it, You you need to listen to the Word of God. You need to focus on God's plan here and that God's in control and you need to quit responding emotionally and you need to start responding on the basis of facts and on the basis of accurate information, and you can't run off and have a temper tantrum or a pity party or let yourself go into self-absorbed emotionalism. You have to confess your sin. You have to turn back to God, and you have to turn to Scripture. We can't operate on emotion because emotion is always going to be self-destructive. Now, that doesn't mean we deny emotion because emotions are part of a makeup, but emotion should never be in the driver's seat. David was letting his emotions here get in the driver's seat. Joab did what had to be done, and he kicked David's emotions out of the driver's seat because he came up and he said, these are the facts, and this is what you need to do. Now, if David had continued to be self-absorbed and arrogant, he would have said, leave me alone. You don't know what you're talking about. You've never had a son die. You don't know what's happening. You don't have the same experiences that I have. My experiences are more important than the truth of God's word, and you get out of here or I'm going to have you killed. But David did not have arrogance. David was teachable, and he had humility, and even though he probably did not like hearing this from Joab, he knew it was the truth. And so David responded in humility, and David changed his course of action. His tears dried up, his weeping and wailing stopped, and he focused on what was best for the nation and what was best for others. Did he stop grieving? 
No. But he stopped grieving in a wrong way. He stopped grieving in a self-absorbed way. And let's see what happens. In Second Samuel 18.33, we're told, then the king, after he heard that Absalom is dead, was deeply moved. This is a very picturesque word in the Hebrew. He began to tremble and quake and rage. Okay, it is, he hears this and he's just overcome with emotion and he goes with it rather than turning to the Lord. We've seen David like this. How many times have we studied the psalm, all the different psalms as we've gone through First and Second Samuel? We see David start off in a wrong mental attitude and in emotion, and he focuses on God, and it changes him. And he turns to God, and he is stabilized in the midst of his situation. And so this is his situation, and he's just crying out. When he cries out, he says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. All he can think of is Absalom. He can't think about God. He think, can't think about God's plan. What we have seen happen is that he has been so concerned with keeping Absalom alive that he told his commanders to keep his, him alive. All the soldiers knew that David's orders were to keep Absalom alive. It ended the battle ended with Absalom's death, and before he died, he'd been discovered by one of Joab's soldiers, and when Joab said, well, why didn't you kill him? Joab said, oh, I'm not me. The king has ordered us to bring him in alive. But Joab knew that Absalom had to die. He knew that this was God's will, and David had rejected God's will for Absalom, and so David was in carnal rebellion against God's will. He'd been working overtime to make sure that Absalom would live, and now God had directly intervened, and Absalom was dead. So Joab is told in verse 1 of chapter 19, says, Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. He has, he's up there. He, he, we're told in the previous verse he goes up into the tower, but it's not a soundproof tower. He's up there weeping and wailing about Absalom and focusing on Absalom. It's all about him. It's not about the people. It's not about the kingdom. And what did, what did he say up there? He says, if only I had died in your place. Now, you're a soldier in his army. And you're down below, and you hear David say, oh, I'd exchange my life for Absalom. Well, wait a minute. I'm willing to give my life for you to be king. You're the one who's got my loyalty, and you're saying you'd throw your life away for this rebel? Why am I loyal to, loyal to you? And so David, David has done the one thing that can turn his entire army against him. He is about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. He is in pure arrogance, and this happens with so many people in their personal in their personal lives. The word here in verse one for mourning is a different word. It's a tzav, which means to grieve, to be sad, to be sor sorrowful. It's very much like the uh, the word lupeo in the in the Greek. It just simply means you're overwhelmed by sorrow, and so Joab goes to him. But we're told something interesting in verse 2. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. They've heard, what, what, they've heard this king up there weeping and wailing and having a pity party, and they're like, what in the world did we do to keep this king? Why did we risk our lives for him 
let's just go home and give it up because he's such a loser. The king is greed for his son, and this son has taken advantage of him, ripped the kingdom apart, was coming to kill him, and he just doesn't get it. Verse 3, and the people stole back. They snuck back into town, into the city that day, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. They were embarrassed. They were shamed. Uh, they were ready to leave and forget all about David. And what's he doing? This is the second part of this bracketing that's going on here. We started with him crying out, oh, my son Absalom, Absalom, oh, my son. And he's continuing it. This wailing went on all day until Joab got there. Verse 5, then Joab came in to the house, came into the house to the king. Now, Joab is going to metaphorically slap him in the face with reality. This has always been my policy in when I'm dealing with somebody who's in a grieving situation, is you don't validate the wrong grief. You don't validate the pity party. You don't affirm, yes, we know, it's really hard on you. You don't, that is not what they need because you're validating their sinful behavior. They are choosing to respond to grief in a, in a self-absorbed, arrogant manner, and that's always self-destructive. So Joab comes in, and he's the friend who speaks the truth. Now, about 80% of the time, when you're the friend that speaks the truth, that'll be the last time you're around because people don't want to hear the truth. They want you to justify their self-absorption they want you to justify their pity party. They want you to justify their emotionalism. I've learned that many years as a pastor. I remember one time when I had a uh, close friend, a couple. I'd known both of them many, many years, and they were getting a divorce. He had betrayed her, and she came along, and I said, you can't be angry like that. You can't be hateful like that. You have to let it go, be gracious in this situation, or it will eat you up. Last conversation I had with her. That's what happens. Today you have disgraced all your servants who have today saved your life. David, you understand what you've done? By sitting up here and having a pity party, you have shamed everybody who, who was in your army. You are, have disgraced them. You have dishonored them. And all the sacrifice that they would give for you. You've disgraced all your servants who today they saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines. They saved the kingdom. And you are disgracing them because you love your enemies, Absalom, and you hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have made you very happy. Wow. What a condemnation. So then Joab tells him what to do. He says, Now therefore, get up, go out, speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. See, David is also guilty because he knows that Absalom 
And Absalom's death was the result of his divine discipline because of Bathsheba and Uriah. He's just been loaded with guilt. So what does he have to do? Number one, he's got to get right with God. He's got to confess his sin real fast and change course, which is exactly what he does. And so he turns back He turns back to God and he straightens out and changes direction. That's the mean the Hebrew word is shuv. It means to turn. It's sometimes translated repent. There's another word, Naham, that's translated repent, but this word has that same idea. It means to turn. In the New Testament, it's metanoia, which means to change your mind. Both of them mean the idea of t- changing course. It's not so- sorrow. It's not remorse. We don't see see uh, David uh, going into another pity party. You're, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've just messed up so bad. I'm just terrible. He, no, silent prayer. He confesses his sin, and he goes right out uh, to the people. And we learn about his actions. He calls the people uh, back to to him, and he praises them. And as a result of that, they are going to get uh, straightened out, and they're back uh Back with him. Okay, this is in chapter 19, 2 Samuel. Verse 8, Then the king arose, and he sat in the gate. I imagine he probably washed his face and got cleaned up a little bit. And they told all the people, So the word goes out, the king is now sitting in the gate where he's supposed to. That's the place of power. So all the people came before the king for everyone of Israel. Remember, I saw that term earlier, pointed it out last week. That's uh, David's David's men for everyone of Israel fled to his tent. So, oh, excuse me, everyone of Israel, that was Absalom's men. So everybody fled, but David's people are there, and they now come back to him, and they are... Uh, surrounding him. And so we have uh, the survival of the kingdom. Now what happens when you deal with people whose grief goes sideways, you have two options. These are the only two options. You can enable them in their sin and self-pity, or you can give them scripture. Those are the options. You can say, okay, I know it's bad. You just keep wallowing in your self-pity and enjoying all of that and everything. We say, look, grief is normal, but you need to be focusing on the Lord. You need to be focusing on the truth. You need to be focusing on the facts that God's in your life. Now, you don't do it in a harsh way. Sometimes I've seen some people do it. It sounds pretty cold and callous. You do it in a way because you you understand they've gone through it. A difficult time they lost somebody dear in their life, somebody important, maybe a child or, or whatever it is, but but you focus them on the truth and you give them facts and you give them information. And unfortunately there are a lot of people who don't want facts and don't want information because that changes the whole focus. But that's what we're supposed to do. That's exactly what Job did and that is what we should do. We have these options. You either continue in arrogance or self-pity, or you respond in humility. Grief isn't the problem. The problem is what you do with it. It's your volition. You have to choose to obey God and apply the word, or you choose to just wallow 
in your own emotions. David chose to focus on the Lord. And so then he arose, he got up, he goes down, and he sits in the gate. He doesn't stop grieving, but he stops doing it in a sinful manner. And so that is the stage here. And we see examples around us every day, everywhere, of people who are operating on emotion rather than facts. And the sad thing is, if we give them facts, they're going to think we're the enemy. And that's arrogance. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But we just need to pray about it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that you're a great God be reminded that we're sinners and we can mess up so fast, so easily, and we can turn a grace blessing into, you know, a manure pile in a heartbeat. And Father, we have to trust in you. We have to constantly confess our sins. We have to constantly do an arrogance check. And we have to constantly turn back to you, trust your word. But above all, we need to, def- we need to protect our souls. We need to learn your word as much as we can to prepare for that day when the disasters are going to come, the death is going to come, the loss is going to come, and it's going to be a test of our faith, as James says, that we can experience uh, your joy, count it all joy, and so that we can mature and grow through that difficulty. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us with your word. In Christ's name, amen.